Today, we are blessed to have Lydia Foreman bringing the word to us today. Lydia is no stranger to us on the north side. She's preached several times here this spring as a part of our pastoral team here at Trinity Northside. And I'm so excited for her to share. Uh, now as we're into our third week of our summer series on emotionally healthy spirituality. And so let me say a prayer for Lydia and then I'll turn it over to her. Father, we do thank you for Lydia. We thank you for the gifts that you have given her to preach your word faithfully. And as she does, we ask that you would give us the gift of faith to receive it as your word, that you would give us the ears to hear, uh, the hearts to receive, and the hands and the feet to obey, that we would be found faithful as your sons and your daughters. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Lydia Foreman. Um, I'm on the pastoral team here at the North Side. And as Tripp mentioned a second ago, I am really looking forward to uh, our live stream service next week as we take these baby steps um, towards a semblance of normalcy. And I'm especially looking forward to uh, taking part in communion, which is something I've longed for uh, during this time of, of quarantine and pandemic. Uh, but if you've enjoyed these sort of homier, cozier uh, backgrounds and these pre-recorded sermons, now is your chance to just soak it up because this is the last one, um, hopefully. Uh, but in the next few minutes, we're going to be looking not only at the sermon text for today, which is the uh, last few verses of the book of Genesis, um, the Joseph story, but we're also going to be looking at chapter three and the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, written by Pete Scazzaro, a book that we've been reading um, together as a church across all three parishes during this ordinary time in the church calendar. Uh, last week, the focus was on chapter two, which Tripp talked about in his sermon, and the chapter title is you Know Yourself That You May Know God. And in that chapter, Scazzaro talks about how many of us, sadly, uh, go to our graves without really knowing who we are. Um, and, and so the rest of the chapter really dives into this idea of developing an authentic self. Um, how do we dismantle our false selves and let ourselves, our true selves in Christ emerge? Uh, because, as he quotes Augustine, how will we know God if we are so far from ourselves. And so this week, we're going to look at chapter three in that book, which is called Going Back in Order to Go Forward, Breaking the Power of the Past. And in this chapter, Scazzaro focuses on uh, the family and how because the family is the most powerful group we'll ever belong to, it has the most influence on who we are and what we do today. Now, of course, we may think that that our families and our parents were the most instrumental factors in our lives and development and formation. But what we may not realize is how much a part they still play today. We may think that uh, over time, as we went to college and heard from different people and interacted with other uh, folks in our lives that had an influence on us, you know, we've we've become different people. We've made our own choices and, you know, unilaterally we have become who we are um, today, the people we are today, uh, chiefly through what we have decided to be. And as Kazera points out, that's actually not really the case. That's not really borne out um, in research, we often are repeating patterns of behavior that were modeled for us as children in our families. And so part of knowing ourselves is understanding our past, which is what he means by going back in order to go forward. Uh, and if you've ever been to see a counselor or a therapist, this is probably familiar territory for you because 
as you may know, uh, what despite whatever the issue is that brought you to their office, before the end of that first session, no doubt, at least in the counseling that I've been exposed to, they're going to ask you um, questions about your family. Uh, did you grow up in a single parent home? Uh, did you have both parents at home? What was family like life like? Did you have siblings? Uh, how did you deal with conflict in your in your home? All those questions. Uh, and you may be frustrated, kind of like I was talking about with a friend of mine, where it seems like the first hundred dollars in the first, you know, several hours of this therapy is just backstory. And you're like, when are we going to get to the actual issue? Uh, but that's because professional counselors know that how huge a bearing our family has on our lives and how much it explains how much what, why we do what we do. Um, growing up, my dad, who I have to say is you know a wonderful person, wonderful father, still is, uh, would really get irritated with our, <laughs> with me and my my siblings um, for repeatedly pressing buttons. Um, you know how kids like to do that, like just for whatever reason, just flip a light switch on and off just to see what happens, or uh, press the button on. Right now, what my kids are doing is pressing the automatic button for the windows. No reason, just do it. Just something kids do. It's an impulse they have. Who knows why? But he really didn't like it. He was always worried we were going to break things. And so he'd kind of bark at us and be like, stop doing that. And to the point where we'd be like, you know, why is this dad's thing? Like, what? Like, why is this such a big deal? And one day he told a story about um, when he was about six or seven years old, he, uh, the, the trash can in the kitchen was broken um, and the piece, the rod that opened the lid, that held the lid open was missing. And he was blamed for that by his father and uh, he was beaten for it. Um, really, really heartbreaking story. And it turns out he was actually falsely accused. Uh, my dad's grandfather, probably because he took pity on my dad, um, helped him find the missing piece, which turned out to be outside, not due to my dad's fault. Um, but of course, a huge impression was made, right? Um, things are more important than people. And, you know, a pattern was created. And, and no doubt my dad's dad probably had some kind of lesson imparted to him as a child that made him react the way he did to my dad about losing this piece to the trash can. And, you know, I'm, and I have to say, my dad um, gave me permission to tell this story. And he actually sent me a very humorous video of him uh, stepping on a trash can lid repeatedly to show that he's he's grown as an individual. He can do this. Um, but I tell this story to say that, you know, we're not... We're not born in a vacuum. We do what we do for a reason. And it's often due to the behaviors that were modeled for us as children. And sometimes I think as Americans and our zeal for the American dream, um, like to fancy ourselves like more unfettered from our past than we truly are. Um, now, that's not to say that I think that, you know, there's some great things that have been achieved. I mean, we have so many great stories of Americans overcoming huge obstacles um, over, you know, overcoming very humble origins or terrible family situations to go on to achieve great things. And that's wonderful. But the truth of the matter is, is we can never run from our past. And it is part of our story, everything about our past. It's who we are. Uh, I recently just finished re-watching the show Mad Men on Netflix with my husband um, right before it left Netflix. It's no longer there. Uh, but I think that this television show, probably better than anything else, um, illustrates this point. Uh, the entire arc of the narrative uh, focuses on the main character, Don Draper, doing this very thing, trying to run from his painful past. Uh, he literally tries to become a different person. He takes on a new identity. He takes on a new name. 
Uh, and you see him over the course of the show uh, try to run from his past, and yet it keeps cropping up, and he tries to numb it with various things, sex, alcohol, um, work. Uh, and you see him impart this advice uh, early on in the show to one of his protégés, um, a young woman who, and this is the 1960s, so uh, this young woman who is his protégé who's showing, showing some promise in the advertising business, and she um, gets pregnant by a coworker. And this would have been, you know, at the time, the end of her career. You know, she was, what was she going to do? And so he gives her a bit of advice and he says, move forward with your life. Forget it. This never happened. It will shock you how much it never happened. And several seasons later, um, as we see Don try to, you know, work out this own, this life philosophy on his own, unsuccessfully, ending up where he's always been over and over again, um, he gives a a repeat or a variation of this same advice to another character, another woman who's in a similar situation. Um, She's pregnant and she doesn't know what to do. And she actually knows him by his real name. His real name is Dick. And interestingly, and I think one of the most powerful lines of the whole show, she says in response to to Don, she says, oh, Dick, I don't think you're right about that. And it's the first time a character has really gone against what he said, what this, this philosophy that he's lived by. And by calling him by his real name, she is emphasizing, I think so powerfully in this show, that no matter how you try to escape it, you can't run from your past. You have to deal with it. And I think that this sort of talk has actually wormed its way into Christianity, right? We we often hear people say like, you know, why dig up the past? Like, why get into all of that? The new has come, the old is gone, we're new creatures. Um, it doesn't matter who we were. It's, it matters now who we are in Christ, right? Um, we're transformed. And, I, and, and honestly, you know, I don't want to say that I'm not saying that's true. I believe all of that is true. Thanks be to God with all of my heart. And yet the question that we have to really ask ourselves is, are we living those transformed lives? Are we living as new creatures in Christ? Or are our lives compartmentalized? Um, as as Scazzaro's example in the book is like, are we singing about God's love on Sunday? And then the moment we get in our cars, back when we drove cars and drove to church, but are we getting back in our cars and pronouncing the death sentence and the driver in the next lane. Um, you know, this, this work of going back is so essential to, to transforming our lives in Christ, becoming new creatures in Christ. Because if we don't do it, if we don't go back to our past and examine those past behaviors, we're going to continue to see symptoms of disconnected spirituality in our lives. We're going to hold it together for a little bit. We can, we can keep our act together for a while, uh, as we see Don do in the in the show Mad Men. But after a while, it's going to start unraveling at the seams. And if we're paralyzed by the fear of exposing our sin or our family history, we're going to continue to live those compartmentalized, compartmentalized lives that aren't marked by flourishing or peace or blessing. We have to start with an admission that our painful past, our family history, is just part of our total identity. We can't deny it. We can't ignore it. We can't run from it. And if we're honest, living those our lives in that way and burying our past is not pleasant. It's just not. It's exhausting. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, I didn't have this traumatic family life. I had a great family. Um, yeah, we weren't perfect, but you know, it wasn't terrible. Uh, 
And, and you know, and thanks be to God if that's the case. I, I don't want to belittle that. I, I think that's wonderful. But regardless of that, you still learned imperfectly because we live in a fallen world and no parents are perfect and no family life is perfect. You learned how to deal with conflict, how to set boundaries, um, all of those things. You learned those things from your family. And when you start to examine these patterns in your life, you start to realize possibly that the way that you've always done things that you've assumed to be the right way to do things, maybe you've assumed it to be the Christian way to do things, is actually just the way that your family has done things. Um, and so the idea of learning how to relive your life according to God's way is kind of frightening. The idea of having to just, how to examine that and how to relive relive life, how to do life is, is terrifying. You might start to wonder like, who am I even if I don't think things this way, if I don't live life this way? But the good news is, God wants to invade those spaces and he wants to bring freedom and he wants to bring life there. That is the essence of the gospel. And I think this, this one quote from chapter three from Scazzaro really encapsulates this perfectly. He says, God never loses any of our past for his future when we surrender ourselves to him. Every mistake, sin, and detour we take in the journey of life is taken by God and becomes his gift for a future of blessing. Now, I want to turn the rest of this time to our text for today, which I think beautifully illustrates this concept. The Bible confirms this to be true in the story of Joseph. So to give a brief recap of what happened, um, because we're coming in at the tail end of the story, uh, Joseph is one of many brothers. Jacob, uh, their father, favors Joseph and makes no bones about it. It's very clear that Jacob favors Joseph above all of his brothers. And uh, they resent him for it. They hate him for it. And it leads them to um, not quite killing him, but selling him into slavery, you know, with the, probably with the intent that they would never see him again. And then he would probably, he would die. And so uh, it's not a great family situation. It's not a family marked by health, you would say. Uh, and in fact, you would, if you, would, if you go back to the earlier chapters in Genesis, you realize that lying and favoritism and jealousy and, uh, fratricide uh, have marked this family for generations. This is not the first time that this, these sins have cropped up in this family. It's a repetition and it's a pattern. Um, but as the story goes, Joseph ends up not living out his life as a slave. He ends up working his way up to becoming the most second most powerful man in Egypt. And Jacob's family, his brothers, are experiencing famine, which lead them to come to Joseph uh, and ask him for help because they are in need of food. And so they don't recognize who he is because of course they're not expecting him to be alive, let alone be the most powerful man. Um, but Joseph of course recognizes them. And after toying, toying with them for a little bit, he does eventually reveal his identity to his brothers. And when he tells them, I'm your brother, he says, look, don't distress yourselves. I know that what you did was intended for evil, but God intended it for good. He planned this so we can save our family and I'm going to provide for you. Now, fast forward to the end of the book, to the, to the chapters for today. We have a repeat of this scene, but the difference is this time Jacob, their father has passed away. And now Joseph, Joseph's brothers are worried that Jacob was the only thing that was keeping Joseph, keeping them alive because, and now that Jacob is gone, Joseph is finally going to take his moment 
to exact his revenge. He's finally going to kill them or make them slaves or make them pay in some way for what looking to him many years ago. And so they did. What do they do? They come to Joseph and they, they lie again. They tell them that on Jacob's deathbed, his dying wish was that Joseph would forgive his brothers, which we don't see happen. And then they bow down to him, which of course is fulfilling the dream that Joseph had many years ago that he would, that his brothers would do. And they offer themselves in this ironic twist, they offer themselves as slaves, which is of course what they did to Joseph many years ago. They sold him into slavery and they're crying and Joseph is crying. And it's this very dramatic emotional scene, which is so unusual for an Old Testament story to get this level of detail. It's very dramatic. And it's all brought to you by this generational sin, this pattern of family behavior um, of unconfronted sin. And then Joseph, of course, responds to them in the same way that he did previously. He says, don't be afraid. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. And I'm going to provide for you and provide for your family. And so there are three things that I want to draw from the story in closing that I think have to do with this idea of going back in order to go forward. One, I think that this story shows that we can confront our past while still holding on to faith. So, What Joseph does here is he invokes this language of wisdom literature, which is a genre found in the Old Testament in the books of Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and some of the Psalms. Um, What he says here, it almost sounds like a proverb, right? It almost sounds like, you know, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but the purpose of the Lord will triumph or something like that. It sounds very Proverbs when he says what you intended for good, God intended or what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And the beauty of this language is that it it does these two things at once. It holds both the reality of life and the evil that is present in the world, whatever you're dealing with in the moment, it acknowledges that and it gives, it honors that by stating it. But it doesn't end there. It It also offers this reassurance that the Lord will triumph in the end and that the Lord has a plan that will, that will happen. And so I think these two things, this holding these two things together is what makes this wisdom literature so powerful. And it's what Joseph does here. He doesn't deny what happened to him. He doesn't try to sweep it under the rug. He admits that what his brothers did was evil and that's what they wanted for him. But he doesn't end there. He doesn't let that, you know, control his life. He says, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. And I think similarly in our own lives, we can admit the ugliness of our family history, these these uh, unhealthy patterns of behavior that we find cropping up um, without resigning ourselves to defeat. Um, We can take it as an opportunity for change. There's hope for change. And then secondly, I think the story shows that God's sovereignty works with and through human action, every human action. And it makes use even of the dark side of human planning. I think it can be really hard, especially where we find ourselves today, this cultural moment that we're experiencing when The sins of our country, racism being thrust in our face every single day. It looks like we're just, we're doomed to keep repeating the past. Um, It's very easy to grow cynical and to say, you know, there's no hope for newness. There's no hope. Um, Things, you know, this is too hard. The rift is too deep. The the gap is too wide. The work is too hard. Um, But I think that the story offers a counter narrative to that thinking Uh, I love what Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament scholar, has to say, particularly about this Joseph story and talking about the sovereignty of God. He says the sovereign character of God's purpose 
can create a real newness, a genesis, an extrapolated freshness, which negates the past, redefines, redefines the present, excuse me, redefines the present. And where's my last page? <laughs> Opens futures. It is that sovereign quality which permits the family of Jacob to begin again. And I think the same can be said of us. I mean, that's the hope of the gospel, right? Our, our history doesn't have to be our future. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean the work is simple. Um, it's hard. And it's not like we can just rush in there and just start barging in, trying to check boxes and try to do the right thing without taking care and without being thoughtful about it. However, we can only start to do the work if we're open to the painful work of coming to terms with our past. And then third and finally, I think the story shows us that God works through individuals in concrete history. His purposes may be hidden from us, but he is at work behind the scenes and we can trust his sovereignty. However, this doesn't relieve humans from their responsibility or their action. They have agency. Uh, Joseph illustrates this beautifully when he says, you know, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Uh, he doesn't say, you know, let's just see what happens to you guys. It worked out for me clearly. He's got a plan. Let's see how it uh, uh, all how it gets unveiled. No, he gets to work because in the very next sentence, he takes action. He says, I will provide for you and for your little ones. They're expecting him to exact revenge. They're ex expecting him uh, to get what they deserve for what they did to him many years ago. But he doesn't do that. He participates in the sovereignty of God, the sovereign grace of God, of providing for this family, of seeing this family uh, to their future, to the future of blessing. Um, as Schizero says, emotionally healthy spirituality is about embracing God's choice to birth us into a particular family in a particular place at a particular moment in history. And this is our call to action. Discipleship requires putting off the sinful patterns of our family of origin and relearning how to do life God's way. We can't take a back seat um, to our lives. Just because God is sovereign, we have a choice. We have an opportunity to change and to relearn how to do life God's way. So I would urge you in these in these coming weeks, um, as we think about these things, as we continue through this book, um, to take an inventory of your emotional baggage. We all have it. Lord knows I have it. And be begin to ask yourself, how can God reach into my past? And where does he want to create newness there? Where does he want to bring flourishing and blessing? Because that's what he longs to do above all else, my friends. That is the essence of the gospel. He longs to bring blessing and flourishing to our personal lives, but also to our country. And I pray that that is so for us and for our country at this time. As a response to what we've just heard, would you join me as we pray boldly the prayer our Lord Jesus has taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
Amen. God bless you this week. I so look forward to seeing you in person next week. And until now and then, as we leave, let us go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.